Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, poet, author, and editor Alan Van Nierven, in conversation with Flock contributors Cassie Lynch, Mal Sayward, and Adam Thompson. Curated by award-winning author Van Nierven, Flock roams the landscape of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander storytelling, bringing together voices from across the generations. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Marketing Assistant, Lucy Des. So... Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge that I am coming to you from the land of the Boon people of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and future, and thank them and you for the wonderful stories that we have received and will continue to receive. Yep, so I'll pass on to Ellen. Good evening. My name is Ellen. I'm Malanjali. Uh, from southeast Queensland, and I want to acknowledge country before I proceed. I'm on Yagara and Turrbal land and pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging, as well as inviting you all to reflect on whose land you are on because we are broadcasting across many different First Nations tonight. Um, I would really like to thank Readings, who are a big supporter of this anthology, uh, for helping us celebrate it tonight. Um, I've been really looking forward to this event. Tonight we are celebrating this beautiful anthology that I had the pleasure of editing. This book, Flock, First Nations Stories, Then and Now. Um, I wanted to say that the length of the short story is perfect campfire material and resident of the original tradition of storytelling and that this beautiful anthology showcases both the power of First Nations writing and the satisfaction of a good short story. It spans generations, genres and geographies. And uh, what's exciting about this collection is seeing stories all previously published but together in this particular um, gathering for the first time um, and, and seeing how these stories speak to other stories and we'll see some of those threads um, interlinking tonight. And we have uh, three contributors of the book Um, here tonight and it's going to be really um, amazing to hear from them and hear from their individual stories. So the format of for tonight is that each of Mel, Cass and Adam are going to uh, introduce themselves, give us a little taster of their story Then after that, we're going to move into a um, question and answer format where we're going to have a little conversation and then the last little while will be audience questions. So please feel free to send your questions to Lucy. Uh, The best question gets a prize. 
um, not really, but I hope that kind of <laughs> kind of motivated you to ask a really good question, uh, a question that you you yourself would like someone to ask you. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. So would you like to kick us off, Mel? So hi, everyone. I'm Mel Saywood. I am a vegan boy and waka waka woman, and I'm coming to you from Tolma, which is also known as Ipswich, and this is um, unceded Yuggera land, and I'd like to pay my respect to the Yuggera peoples and the elders past, present and emerging. I'm going to read a little bit from my story now. Is that right, Ellen? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the piece that I have in this beautiful book is called Galar. Sunny has been thinking about the dead Galar on the curb of the Gateway Bridge every time she's passed it since she spotted it almost a month ago. The first time she saw it, its feathers were still vibrant, its body stiff. That time she wondered about the bird's death. How had it died and fallen so perfectly on the lip of the bridge just inches away from the steady 24-hour procession of cars and trucks? And how long could it lie there? One time she drove by and she imagined herself slowing to a stop, switching on the hazard lights and scooting across the passenger seat. She'd reach out and rescue it from the side of the road, maybe take it to a park and leave it beneath the tree. It seemed a better place for a bird to lie dead than a grey concrete tower. But the same constant buzz of traffic over the bridge that stops the predators from picking away at the bird's carcass kept her from pulling over on her daily commute. And so it rots away quietly, unnoticed, probably, by anyone but her. Each day on her way to work, she's been thinking about the Galar, but only close to the Eagle Farm exit. She begins to think about it as she drives through the place where the toll booths used to be and again, just as the car accelerates up the crest of the bridge. She never thinks about it for long before or long after. It's there now as Lennon jerks the Camry's brakes on the descent down the bridge towards the airport. Sonny's forehead is pushed, pressed against the cool passenger side window and even though her view of the Galar is still just a glimpse, she sees it closer this time the head lolling, limbs loose, muscles withered. Its wings have turned from a soft grey to a mottled, rotten brown that creeps across the dull pink breast as though it's been stepped on or scuffed. She lets out a snort and Lennon glances at her. What? The galah, we're the same, Sunny answers. It's all she offers and Lennon doesn't ask her to explain. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Adam, could we please hear from you? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name's Adam Thompson, and uh, I'm from the Palawara Pakana mob uh, from Lutrawitta, which is Tasmania. I live in Launceston. And I'm very proud to be, for one of my stories, to be in Flock. I think it's a fantastic collection of stories. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to read uh, a little bit of my story, which is called Honey, and it's uh, from my short story collection, Born Into This, um, that was uh, released early this year. It's actually the first uh, story in that collection that I wrote. So, Nathan, what is the Aboriginal word for honey? Asked Sharky as he swung the ute into a sharp right-hand turn. 
Nathan looked out of his open window into the steep ravine known as the Elephant Pass. A ghostly afternoon mist clung to the ferns and trees that lined the gorge. He could feel his hair dampening from the cool air coming through the window. Not sure, he replied absently. Well, you're Aboriginal, aren't you? You should know, said Sharky. Yeah, well, I'm sure there is a word for honey, but thought you were going to find out for us. Want to use the name on me label? Be a good gimmick for selling the honey, I reckon, especially with the tourists. Yeah, probably, said Nathan. I'll look into it. That'd be good, and cheers for giving us a hand moving the hives. Really need to get them onto the prickly box now the Kunzia has finished flowering. Yeah, no worries. Nathan looked over at Sharky and met his gaze. Sharky liked to make eye contact when they talked in the car. Nathan thought it was a bad habit but obliged him anyway. You know what, Nath? I was serious when I said I'd give you the ute if you keep help helping me out like this. I reckon you've just about earned it by now. Cheers, man, said Nathan. They hit an intersection at the base of the pass and Sharky turned right onto the coast highway. The ocean appeared and disappeared as the undulating road wound its way through farms and forests. They pulled into a concealed driveway, overgrown with drooping she-oaks. Hives are just in there, said Sharky, pointing into the bush. Might want to suit up. Both men got out of the vehicle. Sharky reached into a black fish bin on the tray and scruffed two wrinkled plastic bags. He threw one to Nathan. This should fit you. Nathan stared up at the sky. It was late afternoon and there was still plenty of light, but the sky over the ocean was darkening. Looks like rain, he said, as he shook out his bee suit. Sharky was already zipping his up. He was one of those people who did everything flat out, making his fat, saggy face and body jiggle constantly. Yeah, well, that's why we need to get these hives blocked up fast. They climbed over the broken wire fence and made their way through the trees to the beehives, which stood out stark white against the green and brown hues of the coastal vegetation. Only two weeks earlier, the cotton wool-like kunzia flowers had been fragrant and alive with bees. Now, their dried and shriveled remains carpeted the ground and the dank piney smell of rotting she-oak needles layered the salty air. That's it. Thank you. Cassie. Hiya. I'm delighted to be here. I'm zooming in from Wajak Noongar country um, and I'm Wailaman Noongar, so Noongar Nation's big nation. Uh, Wajak country is Perth metropolitan area, also known as Borlu. And my country is actually 600 kilometres from here to the southeast. You guys might know Bremer Bay or Esperance. Esperance has a very famous beach called Lucky Bay, which looks beautiful in pictures, but I assure you is the coldest place on the face of the earth, even when the sun's out. Um, but here, here in Perth, uh, we sit on a geological feature known as the Swan Coastal Plain. And this story uh, split in uh, the anthology is about multiple, multiple cultures, multiple chronologies existing in one place. Um, so this is a reading kind of halfway through the story. So good luck catching up on what's going on. So the story is called Split. The sun is on its way down. The sky is pale blue with grey pink clouds reflecting in the river. Near my feet, a tortoise with a thick carpet of shaggy moss on its shell is making its way past a traffic cone to its secret home somewhere within the walls of a restored church. 
The streets are filling with people leaving work for home. Thousands of bodies. They are sliding through the swamp undampened. They traverse like cross-cosmic travellers in spacesuits, walking on a foreign planet, carrying with them the atmosphere of their place of origin. Anthropocene air. The Anthropocene air was brought to Noongar country from the European civilizations across the seas. It traveled with them on the ships, in the lungs of convicts, soldiers and settlers, trapped in their clothes, clinging to objects they brought with them. Like a second skin, an air around them, a buffer between the minds and bodies of settlers and the deep time of Noongar country. After more than 200 years, this coating of air has survived. Parents breathe it into their infants born here. English language generates and replenishes it. Children absorb it from art, music and stories. Anthropocene air clumps together in cities and communities, bolstering it, reinforcing it. This air is around our feet our hands, our eyes, our tongues. We walk on air, a cushion of resistance between the soles of our feet and the soil of Noongar country. A cloud that distorts and bends time around us, keeping us in the quicker experience of settler time and blocking out the cyclical deep time, the kind of time that can split continents, raise mountains, and fill oceans. In this suit of air, we slide across Noongar country, never settling in, never sinking down. Beautiful, thank you. Um, I was really struck by this story when I first read it in Seizure um, and I wanted to ask you how you came up with this idea for a short story is very, I found it very unique um, because, you know, as you explained, um, this uh, writing, these, these multiple timelines um, with this kind of uh, first-person narrator, I think that's kind of like a communal narrator, not just a single narrator, um, and this sense of being situated in this kind of sort of deep time, multi, multi times at once. Um, very curious to know uh, how you wrote this story. I think a lot of it comes from my, because I've just finished my PhD, and my PhD is on uh, Aboriginal stories that reference the last ice age and the rise in sea level that came after it. So this ice age was 20,000 years ago, and there was really rapid rise in sea level after it. It takes a long time for the world to cool down to an ice age, but warming is very rapid. The earth wants to warm. And that's why, you know, we're facing problems with climate, with man-made climate change, is that the climate wants to take off. And the thing is that, you know, the ice age 20,000 years ago, but mob have been in the southwest here for at least 50,000 years. Mm -hmm. So we watched the sea levels drop. We, you know, survived the freeze that lasted 4,000 years. And then we watch the sea level rise again. So that deep memory is in Noongar stories. We tell stories about, yeah, the cold times where it was really hard to keep a fire alight. 
um, and the like animal relatives that helped us with fire. And then we tell stories about the angry sea that rose and separated us from our from our islands that are, you know, parts of the landscape that are now islands. And so I think when you consider settler ideas of place, they can be quite fixed, right? Mm. So this is this, and it comes into like property and stuff, you know, like mm. if you have a very fixed idea of time and place and chronology, right? You can say, I own this patch of land, but in the past it was dry land, it might be water now. In the future, it might be water and it's dry land now. Yeah. You know, like there is a real flexibility of thought and time in Noongar culture that I don't see present in settler culture. So this story, Split, as you can imagine from a name like Split, is about resisting um, settler ideas of time, you know, time where my culture is pushed to the past and Western culture is the future, you know, like how can I sink back into time? Because, you know, settler presence here is so recent. It's only 194 years in the Southwest, whereas my culture goes way back. And this story with, you know, the like um, you've got Perth, for those who haven't read it, Perth City and the swamps that it's built on re-emerge, mm. right? And I, I think I, I think I see those swamps when I walk around the city. You know, I'm really yeah, aware wow. of them, mm-hmm. um, and that's where this story comes from of like sharing that vision and that deep time connection with readers. You know, because I think it's good for the spirit, good for the heart to consider country from a non-Western point of view, because Western and settler ideas can be much to do with property and possession and fear of losing possession. Whereas that spirit of country is very enveloping and deep. And so I think writing like this in this kind of deep time way is quite therapeutic for myself Mm. and also an act of sharing for non-Indigenous people in Perth who might read it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I really, really powerful words there. And uh, have you got... um much response from I don't know like non-Indigenous people living in the city who've read the work or any sort of feedback from people that that you know that about their feelings about the story well it's always so strange to write something and anyone read it Mm. you know and they tell you about it and it's just extraordinary because it's something that's in your mind and then other you share that with other people so on that level it's it's amazing just to share it but People, uh, you know, like non-Indigenous people who've read it in Perth, like reviewers and radio personalities and stuff, have said that it changed the way that they saw Perth, you know. And then my kind of like like Noongar community over here are just like, they were just happy. They're just, oh, oh, it was just so nice to go there. You know, and a couple of my mates have like drawn pictures from it and stuff. And it's like, oh, wow. Like there are oh, ways so to bring good. people together, you know, that um, is that sense of, you know, sharing and the yarn to, to kind of connect with people. And it really had a, a broad, good response in that way, you know. I think there's an invitation in the story. Definitely, yeah. Speaking of, I guess, story worlds, Melanie, I just wanted to say, Mel, I just wanted to say, that the story world in your story, very familiar to me as someone who um, lives and works in Mianjin, 
and also another link with um, Cassie's story, your story, Galar, the Galar is very present in the story. It reminds me of how the black swan in Cassie's story as well and how this was kind of a parallel to Flock and um, the name of the collection and then uh, also uh, Kukula's beautiful um, artwork uh, of the black cockatoo that features on the cover as well as um, kind of little motifs throughout the book that separate each story. So the sense of the birds, birds being a really big part of um, the way that you read the book as well. So I wanted to ask you about the Galar in your story and what's the significance for you of that bird? Um, yeah, so the story the story for me started with the Galar and that image of a dead Galar on the Gateway Bridge, which um, I in the part that I read where Sunny only thinks about it just as she's about to see it and just for a couple of seconds after she gets off the bridge and then it's gone from her day. It's kind of that was how it was for me. And every time I saw it, every time I started up the bridge, I'd think, is that Galar there? And it was the image of something beautiful and connected to that natural world on this horrible structure that also we can't get by without, but also just that contrast of steel and metal and, um, you know, feathers and delicateness of a, you know, a bird's body when, when they've died. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, and I, and I have, I, I always felt that I've had quite a connection with birds and galahs in particular, um, ever since I was a child. So I'm writing a lot of bird stuff at the moment. So I've, um, I've got a story published about magpies and um, the piece that I've got shortlisted in the Caraca Prize, which also named after birds um, at the moment with Overland is about plovers. So I sort of have this, uh, thing where I notice the birds they come at times in my life where there's something going on or there's a change or I have a question um, and those sorts of things and and it's different things um, different images that come to me so the galah the dead galah was a big thing um, and Sunny associates herself with it so uh in in the story she sort of becomes the galah she says that they're the same um the story is about trauma and being broken by things over and over and she sort of sees herself losing color maybe losing life um by the things that she's seen and the things that have happened to her but um like i think it ends with a hopeful image as well of of the galah um and running, she runs into comfort towards the end and that's when she sees, um, imagines the galah hopefully at the end. So, yeah, it, it has a lot of significance to me but it was a story that started with that image. Mm. Um, and it's also the story is a character study. That's how it started. Um, it's a character study of a secondary character from my master's thesis that I finished a couple mm. of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and Sunny's a uh, secondary character. She's like the second main character. And uh, she wasn't behaving the way I wanted her to 
in the story and there were questions about what had happened to her, um, why she was, why she's in Tasmania, which is where the novel is set and, um, yeah, what, what happened to her. So I, I sat with this image of the Galah and thought about Sunny's life before and put it on the page and it was really nice when it got picked up by Jed Press um, to yeah. be published because it's really nice to live in that uh, story world for a little while longer and um, give the characters that you've created um, life off the page that there might not be space for in even a longer work. So um, it, it's really nice and I hope that one day um, the novel will be published and I'll be able to also point to Flock as a place where you can mm. learn a little bit more about this other character that might not always say what's happened to her. And I think that people yeah. who read it will, you know, draw some conclusions about what's happened. So. so it's part of a larger work but sort of like a side kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. It was okay, a character cool. study that was never yeah. actually meant to be seen yeah. by people but it grew into something that had a life of its own. It was really just yeah. a way of making her live on the page and mm. she, she has her own life now, I suppose. Yeah. No, that's interesting because when I was writing my first book, Heat and Light, I would often, yeah, I would kind of often just keep going spinning off, you know, be like, what about this minor character and then write another story about them and, um I came up with so much material um, that I was able to repurpose in different ways and sometimes um, sometimes what really works well as a, a individual story um, or sometimes what's not potentially working in a longer piece can be a really amazing um, short story and I yeah. I loved how I love how those birds are, are mess like messengers for you and they're they're um, gifting you these stories. That's really um, beautiful, Adam. Um, your story, honey. Um, for me, I call it a, already a classic black story, um, because short story because it's a story that I keep returning to that I've taught many times and. Um, I love it because it, for me it's subversive, it's cinematic, the metaphor is really strong. I love the, your reading of it because it really brought that energy to the front. It's a story with a lot of, uh, lot of energy and um, as you mentioned, it appears in your collection, uh, Born Into This, which came out earlier this year, uh, lots of amazing stories in um, that book um, and I wanted to ask uh, what is it about the form of short stories and the power of short stories that appeals to you as a storyteller? Okay well thanks for saying that about my story that it's a classic story Ellen. I appreciate that. Well I'm not a guru at all about uh, short stories but I can certainly talk about what I you know my own personal view well, I like that in a short story, you know, you're reading it in a single sitting and kind of like what you said, Alan, about that campfire length um, and in a single reading. And I think there's something about that, that you, you you stay fully immersed in the story. You know, you're not breaking out of it regularly like you are with a novel unless you can read a novel extremely fast. Um, 
you know, which I can't. I'm putting it down mm. all the time mm. uh, and breaking out of that story. And I like that I can stay within that story for that from beginning to end. I think, you know, part of that is, you know, the fact that it is a short form and it's combined with, with succinct writing. Mm. Um, so I guess that leads me on to another thing I like about, you know, the sh- short story is, you know, that you, you know, you really kind of you're taking on the challenge of the craft of writing in a way um, that you, you, you know, you, you really have to make it, um, like I said, succinct um, and to the point. Um, and it's, it's, it's challenging as a writer and I, and I enjoy that. Um, I think too, with that, when you have, when you're looking at a collection of short stories, um, you can cover a lot of turf um, with, with born into this, there's a lot of themes that I explore in that collection. So I guess having, you know, 16 stories in one book, it allows you to to, to go in and out of all of those different themes and, and issues um, that you, and things that you want to say. So I, I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I like that you, you know, you only have a short time to present your characters. Yes. And that it's you kind of you do your best to bring them to life in in that short period of time and it's usually you know quite an intimate space that you have with those characters and that you create um mm. so so they're the things that I think I I like as, mm. you know being a storyteller mm. Uh, mm. I guess there's differences in the way what I like to read I mean I, I write what I like to read but um, when I look at what I like to read and what I like to get from a short story, it's a little bit different than what I, how I like to write. Well, how, what do you like to read then? Because that was going to well, be my follow-up question to you, yeah. I like to feel something yeah, from a okay. short story. Mm. I, I really um, I like to come away with, um, with an emotional experience. Um, uh, I think that's really important. It's, it stays with you. I think a short story has to stay with you. Um, and that's my favourite feedback that I get from from readers mm. about my is they say, oh, look, I couldn't stop thinking about that story, you know, after I was read, finished it. I think that's like the, the best compliment that I can get. <laughs> so you're saying that you... Um, you really like that emotional response as a reader, but that's potentially different to how you write stories. Do you ever, when you write stories, do you ever think about that emotional response and how the reader is going to feel at the end of the story? Do you ever think think about that? Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, I, I do. Um, I want to create a story that's going to stick with people and so, mm. you know, you have, to, you have to play with people's emotions a bit there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah I just love that feeling of you know not wanting to let the character go when I read a story yes. wondering about what happens to them after the story is finished um, yes another thing that I, I love about um, a story about reading a short story I love it when there's a twist or there's some sort yes. of ambiguous ending I love that and I think you know you, you can get away with that you know, in a short story, um, whereas in the longer form, you know, you feel a little bit ripped off if you you read a whole novel, you invest all that time in a novel and you don't quite get the ending or it's not 
it's not um, satisfying enough. Um, whereas in a short story, you know, you, you, you don't have to wrap it up in a neat little bow. And in yeah. fact, I prefer that it's not myself. So Adam likes endings that are not completely, you know, tied up, resolved. Uh, what about uh, Cassie, Mel, what sort of stories do you um, like reading? What sort of stories are you drawn to? Um, picking up on what Adam said, I like stories with a really strong sense of place, like immediately where place almost kind of acts like a character, which is very present in all of your stories. And I like stories that, you know, they don't give give you everything at once. You kind of got to earn earn it. They have like a, you know, a subtext is important in the story and the reader is really rewarded by picking up that that subtext. The type of story where you can read it multiple times and keep the layers can keep unraveling. Um, like I said, doesn't give you everything at once. Um, so how about you, Mel? What kind of stories do you like? Uh, all of the above. Um, I, I like the sort of story that gives you a sense that the characters had a life before and they had a life, they have a life after what's mm. page. Um, and, you know, they can be little things like conversations or characters that you don't explain everything about how they're there, they enter and they leave, but you get the sense that they have that full rounded life, like you're just getting a little slice of people's lives, I think. Um, I'm really drawn to character-driven pieces as well because I like a little bit of, um, you know, a little insight. I think that there's room to play in a short story in a way that you don't always have um, with a novel but yeah I think you know all of the things that you've all said twists subtext things that you can read over and over nice symbolism things that you discover at different times when you read it that strike you in different moods yeah I think because I'm a researcher and I did the PhD for five and a half years I forgot how to read for pleasure so it's <sighs> Yeah, and I still, I think I'm still in that zone, even though I've been out for a couple of months now. Um, when I read now, I'm reading, searching for truth. You know, it feels like the PhD was really only the beginning. And I like to read, and then prior to the PhD, some of my favourite works were like Italo Calvino, Calvino, you know, like Invisible Cities, Borges, Kafka. I think those, those writers are concerned with... Um, talking about difficult ideas and emotions that you can't directly describe. So they have to create a whole unusual world to hold a variety of ideas in that the reader then has to see how they feel about it. You know, I think Calvino was writing about the nature of reality a lot, Kafka, the nature of being a heart in the world, you know, a heart alone in the world, I think is what the, the vibe I get from Kafka. So I think I am looking at the way that those writers tackle such difficult ideas. And I don't think it's necessarily character-driven. I think it's a vibe and a mood and you get to the end of the story or the novel and they're not necessarily plot-driven either. Um, so I think I'm still looking for that in fiction. Um, I think it's, and I think it ties into the way that elders speak and you don't get it straight away, but it stays yeah. with you these images 
you know, these images and ideas and it's not until you live your own life that you see what they were talking about. And so I think there is a connection there and I think maybe Alexis Wright might be someone who is working in images um, that come from a, a heart, from a spirit, but she's not telling you everything. So, yeah, I miss reading for pleasure. I think I'm a bit of a like, uh, uh, I think I'm, pro- I'm still processing things in fiction. So I think my favourite things to read might be poetry. I think poets get straight to the point, um, especially our poets, Indigenous poets. Um, I'm really looking to them for leadership on how to live a good life, you know, so elders and poets maybe. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, you've mentioned some really high-ranking names there. Do you have a sense of what imprint or impact that you want to make with your writing, you know, as a whole? I Yeah, interesting. I think our hearts are all connected. So I think on that level I would like to connect. You know, I'm working on a novel, um, which I did for my PhD, um, which I would like, I would hope to hope to publish. And that is very much concerned with um, rearranging, rearranging the Swan Coastal Plain as we know it so that people might see it for the first time from an angle that is inspired by like Noongar ontology. Because I think we're so stuck in our ways. I think colonialism has really puts a lot of pressure on hearts and spirits. So how can I, how can I share my love of country with people who have been you know, kind of really indoctrinated and under the pump by colonial kind of like mindsets. Mm. I think that's what I want to offer people is like, oh, you know, there's this, there's this other way of seeing where you live and it could, it could, um, it could change, could change your world. Mm. You know, we're such a small part of the population our people in the Southwest. There's 30,000 of us and 2.4 million West Australians, you know, like, um, so it's a big ask, but that I think is something that I found therapeutic for myself of moving forward as a creative person. Yeah, I love what you say about, you know, the, the, the kind of that motivation to to make a big impact, but it's also, you know, healing for you as well at the same time. It's really great. Uh, we do have a question from Sarah. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts about this one. Were you initially daunted by writing short stories? Was it a step to writing a novel or do your stories exist as they are? Thanks for your question, Sarah. Who would like to answer first? Uh, I, I wasn't um, because uh, I'm a, a pretty new kind of writer, really. I started writing kind of late. Um, and I, I just, I mean, because I like reading short stories so much, I just thought that was the kind of the natural thing for me to do. So I wasn't I wasn't really daunted by it. I was, um, I don't have a, a background in creative writing, um, so I was kind of learning as I went. Uh, but I was aware that, you know, there is a real craft to, to learn um, with short stories. But I wouldn't say I was daunted. It was it was a nice challenge. And, and, and the kind of pathway to, I mean, it has been a little bit of a pathway to a novel, I suppose. I'm writing a novel mm-hmm. now. Um, but I kind of always felt that people expected that of me to write a novel um, because I've, I've got a short story collection and that's the next thing. Now, I am enjoying it. I, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot more daunted by a novel, I, I guess, because it's a longer form. Um, and with a short story, when I'm crafting it and writing it, I can, I can keep that story in my head. I don't really need to take notes. Whereas I found mm. with, with a novel, um, I've really got to keep track 
of the story and um and I'm and I don't like taking notes but I've been forced to with that I'm not daunt I don't think I'm daunted either that's a that's a tough way of thinking about it but I think um with short stories I'd approach them and novels I approach them as separate things you know separate genres uh different approaches um I am in a different headspace when I write short stories to when I write a novel. So I'm I'm working on my PhD at the moment and it is a novel and I'm in that sort of structural edit phase, that note-taking phase that Adam just talked about. I'm in that part where you realise that you haven't tied up a subplot here and you've picked this thing up and that sort of thing. And that doesn't happen in a short story, but it's a totally different headspace for me. I'd love to go and sit and write some short stories now, but I'm in novel head. And I think when my short story brain comes back, I'll be there for a little while. Um, I'm writing notes about them all the time. But, yeah, for me they're separate they're almost separate forms like writing nonfiction or poetry, for example. They um, they exist in a different way and they want different things from me, I think. Mm. But cool. I, I wouldn't say one's a stepping stone to the other. I don't think I could ever not do either, I think, is the thing for me. Uh, cool, cool. Uh, Cassie? Yeah, I think um, the perfect length for me is 600 words, right? <laughs> yes, okay, yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's all I want. And, like, I, um, I've done a couple of audio works recently yeah, where I cool. it with a bit of a soundscape behind it. I've got a collaborator who um, makes music from samples on country. Mm. And, you know, at 600 words, that's people's attention span when you're reading something out loud. I feel like it's got a natural, it's a natural length to just explore one idea. So split is 3,000 words and that was, um, yeah, it is something that really needs to be crafted. You know, mm. I, I have a lot of admiration for, because that's my only, split is my only 3,000 word short story. I write heaps of stuff that's 600 words and then, you know, just take on the novel. But, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for the short story writers and those who are, that's their natural craft because I think it's, it's requires requires real skills. So the novel might be easier for some people you know, like, mm. um, so the short story guys, you know, hats off to you. You do it well. What I'm getting is that everyone's different. We all have our little sweet spot and uh, and also the forms that challenge us as well. Um, I have got, I've got two questions actually. Uh, one, another additional one has just popped up. Uh, if we could do rapid fire answers for these questions, because I'd love to answer them both, but we're we're sort of reaching our, you know, time limit shortly. Um, the first question is uh, from Grace. Who are your writing influences? Melissa Lukashenko, big one for me. Adam? I don't. I don't want to say because I've, I've got. I don't want to leave anyone out. I'm always <laughs> paranoid about listing yeah. names and just leaving people out. But yeah, all, all of the main black writers, yeah, <laughs> and white writers too. Yeah, I think I, I listed a couple of mine. The ones that I would add to it uh, might be probably J.G. Ballard. You know, he's a British mm. New Wave science fiction writer and he wrote climate fiction in the 70s and then the culture fiction in the 80s and 90s. And he he's a white writer who could kind of skewer white culture. And I think that's an extraordinary skill, you know, to be able to look at yourself 
and your own culture and see what its shortfalls are. So I'm quite inspired by that. Uh, And lastly from Jane, um, Jane says, hearing from you all I think gives me a better context to your stories. Any tips to approach reading the other stories in the collection? That's a tricky question. Mm. I guess the thing that I would say is um, potentially remember that all mob uh obviously we've seen here tonight all mob are different and all their stories and their approaches are going to be different so I you know we probably can't give a monolithic answer to say how to approach all the stories but um like openness and thoughtfulness and um you know think about someone's telling you a story around a campfire that theme that Ellen's already said tonight I think is a really good approach to them um and and not every story is going to reach you where you're at at the moment um but potentially if you've got a copy of the book you can come back to it and it might stand out to you um in the future I might suggest um reading it from start to finish um you know a lot of effort goes you know goes into the order of the stories from you know Ellen being the editor um and so there's usually a reason behind the way the stories are ordered the way they are. And I know it's, and I, I'm guilty of it, you know, just going to any story, the one that, that you know, the title sounds the most interesting and reading them all mm. out of order. Yeah, um, read it start to finish. And um, and just enjoy the, the the diversity there and of, of over time as well. You know, some of this stuff's very new and some of it's been around for a while. So Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I just think a cheat sheet for Indigenous literature is that Indigenous people are locational, you know, like a story doesn't belong everywhere and doesn't come from everywhere, you know, like Australia is an island continent and Australians belong to the entirety of it, but it's such a big place to be connected to, whereas Indigenous people just come from a specific place or a few places. Um, So it's always interesting to, to read the story and see where the story is set you know, like um, mm. see, see where it is. And I think that would help kind of bring that idea that there are other ways of identifying and belonging in the world that are much more specific than maybe Western culture. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, really, I've learned so much tonight. It's been really insightful. I, I think we're all loving Um, the conversation, uh, but we have reached our time. Um, Unless anyone wants to say anything, last thoughts. Um, I would like to really thank the three of you, um, Cass, Adam and Mel, for just being incredible and everything that you've brought to tonight. I would love to thank uh, attendees for um, joining us tonight. Um, we really hope that you're wherever you are, you're safe and well, and that you continue to have a lovely evening. I would love to thank Readings for providing um, this platform and supporting the book, as well as to thank the publisher UQP, a uh, major supporter of um, First Nations writing. And please do uh, purchase a copy of Flock from Readings. Um, You, like, you know, Adam said, um, you're in for an experience um, reading these stories. 
and hopefully um, uh, our authors will be around to sign the book in person um, soon. Also check out some of the more recent First Nations titles at readings, um, including um, Adam's short story collection. Um, so thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thanks to our wonderful authors and on behalf of UQP and readings, thank you for coming and have a wonderful night, everyone. Thanks. Bye. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.